am Pastor Tim. It is uh, really a joy to be here with you this morning, and, and honestly, it's a privilege. Uh, it's a privilege to serve as your pastor. Thank you guys for walking with me, for trusting me, for seeking the Spirit of God with me. And uh, man, the Lord is among us, and I am grateful uh, to be here to serve with you guys, and uh, to begin this morning, before we jump into Hebrews chapter 12, I want you to just imagine uh, for a moment with me, imagine that you have lived since the time that you can remember as a slave. You and your family and your family's family and all of your people are, are slaves in Egypt, and every moment that you wake up until the time you go to bed is, is spent making bricks. If you're a kid, you probably are gathering straw. If you're a woman, you're, you're, you're making mud patties. If you're a man, you're hauling bricks that have been dried in the sun 12, 14, 16 hours a day in the hot Egyptian sun. You've heard whispers growing up maybe before bed as your parents were tucking you in. You heard whispers about this creator God that supposedly had a plan for you and your people. As an adult, maybe sitting around the fire cooking in brief moments, you, you heard stories, maybe even you've shared stories yourself about this God and how he made a promise to a distant relative of yours named Abraham and Abraham's son Isaac and Isaac's sons Jacob. Jacob, by the way, had his name changed to Israel, so you are the people of Israel. You've heard that you are God's chosen covenant people, but it doesn't really seem to be playing out. You, you know that your ancestors were nomadic Sheep herders that lived in the land of Canaan, apparently at, at that time they were free. God had told them hundreds of years before you that, that God was going to give them their own land, this promised land of Canaan as an inheritance. And God supposedly is going to build a great nation from the descendants of Israel, bless them and bless all the nations of the earth through them. But that was over 400 years ago. There had been a famine and your people had come to Egypt to seek refuge, but they had since been enslaved. And now to you, God's promises and this covenant and this promised land just seem to be a distant memory. But one day you hear rumors about this guy named Moses, a fellow Israelite who had been raised through a fluke in Pharaoh's house. But he had rebelled against Pharaoh, he had fled Egypt and was banished for 40 years, but now you hear that Moses is back. And now Moses is claiming to speak for your God, a God that he now calls Yahweh, whose name in Hebrew means I am, or I am who I am. And now he's going to Pharaoh and he's challenging the Pharaoh's authority, he's demanding that Pharaoh let you and your people go free. And eventually... Moses and his brother Aaron begin to call down plagues by the power of God on Egypt and these terrifying signs of judgment fill the land. The Nile River turns to blood and the land becomes overrun with frogs and flies and locusts and boils until finally after weeks of this, the firstborn son of every Egyptian household is struck dead. An exasperated Pharaoh tells Moses, take the people and get out. And so in the middle of the night, you and your family, you grab what you can carry and you flee. Along with thousands of other Israelite slaves, you rush out of Egypt on foot, imagining going out, leaving everything you've ever known, maybe a little excited but certainly terrified of what is about to happen. And over the course of the next few days, this rush of joy and freedom that you felt that first night, it begins to wear off when you realize that Pharaoh's army and chariots are now chasing you and he has changed his mind and you run for weeks and weeks and weeks until finally you're at the banks of the Red Sea and you are trapped because Pharaoh's army is coming and about to crush you. When suddenly Yahweh, through the hand of Moses, does another miracle and the Red Sea simply parts and you and your people cross on dry land. And the Egyptian army tries to follow, but as they get out in the middle of the Red Sea, God collapses the waters and it crashes on top of you and all of your enemies are drowned. Of course, you and the people, you can imagine standing on the other side of the Red Sea are overjoyed and, and your faith in Moses, your faith in the Lord is, is reaffirmed and Moses leads you in what is becoming a budding new nation, leads you in a song of praise. That's just the first six weeks, but then things really get hard. What follows is weeks and weeks of travel in the wilderness under Moses' leadership and though you are now free, things are, are chaotic. 
and you are a group of uneducated, untrained, disorderly slaves who don't know where you're going. And you have no Bible, you have no rules, you have no system of government or worship, and you have this distant memory of a covenant with your people, a far-off promised land that no one has ever seen, no one's seen for hundreds of years. And there's no order among the people. You have no adequate food supply, water is scarce, and dehydration and starvation and exposure are constant threats to your survival. At one point, you come across and are confronted by a rival tribe, and you have to pick up sticks and rocks and whatever you can and fight against them. Still, somehow, Moses, his brother Aaron, their sister Miriam, somehow are keeping thousands of you alive. You see, the reality is that God's presence has never left you. Yahweh has been leading his people. There's this pillar of, of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire every night that leads the people of Israel. And, and miraculously, every morning when you wake up in this wilderness, there's this mysterious bread-like substance called, called manna that shows up with the morning dew. And you go out and you scrape it and you have enough to eat. And, and some evenings, God will send flocks of quail for you to have meat. And, and one time when things were really desperate and you had no water and you were dying of thirst and you cried out to Moses, Moses, by the hand of God, brought a spring of water from a rock for you to drink from. And so clearly, God is with you. But things are, are very hard because despite all this, morale amongst you and your family and the people around you is low. Things are literally on the edge of complete meltdown. You're beginning to question what in the world is happening. Moses doesn't seem to have a clear plan. Some of the other leaders and elders in the people around you begin to question Moses' leadership. In fact, they accuse him of simply bringing you out from Egypt into the wilderness to die. And some people begin to say, we should turn back, we should go back, we'd be better off as slaves in Egypt than dying out here in the wilderness. And this is going on for weeks, about six weeks, but then things change because one day on the Sinai Peninsula, you arrive at the foot of a mountain and Moses tells you to set up camp. And Moses hears from God and he tells you and your spouse and your children, he says, the Lord God has spoken and he said that all that you've seen all that I've done all the ways that I carried you and brought you to myself now I am calling you I'm calling you to obey my voice to keep my covenant out of all the people of the earth you hear God calls you his treasured possession and so you and all the people are now excited and exuberant and you shout back in response to Moses as he gives you the word of God you shout back yes we will follow we will obey Yahweh although in reality you don't know what you're agreeing to Moses says, okay, if that's truly your heart, then get ready, clean yourself, prepare yourself. In three days, God is going to speak. And so God instructs you to gather around the, the foot of, of Mount Sinai to set up this perimeter. There's a perimeter around the mountain. No person, not even an animal, can go up and to the base of the mountain. And as you gather three days later after you've made this proclamation, you're standing at the mountain, all of a sudden... This massive, massive storm descends on the mountain. And there is thunder and there is lightning. And you see dark, thick clouds. And you hear this loud blast like a train, like a trumpet roaring across the mountain. And the Lord descends in fire. And the entire mountain is engulfed in smoke. And you're standing at the foot of the mountain with this ragtag group of, of family of ex-slaves and you're seeing this and you see the mountain itself tremble and the mountain itself shakes and this violent sound like a trumpet gets louder and louder and somehow in the midst of it God is speaking to Moses but you and all of the people around you are terrified. You don't know what's happening. You're trembling in fear at every Every instinct in your body says, run away. Run away from whatever is happening on this mountain. And so you do. You start to, to back away and you cry out to Moses. Moses, you talk to God. You find out what he wants from us. But this is too much from us. If this keeps up, if God speaks directly to us, we're all going to die. This is too much. Moses tries to reassure you. He yells out to you and the people, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. God is with us. It's okay. But afraid, terrified is exactly what you are. There's the smoke and the rumbling and the clouds and the thunder and the lightning is roaring. Moses announces to the people, to your relief, he says, 
Aaron and I are going to go up on this mountain and we're going to hear from God. You, you all can go back to your tents. And for 40 days, Moses and Aaron go up on the mountain. They receive the Ten Commandments and all the laws of the Torah. And you go back to your tent with the mountain still shaking and the, and the cloud still there. The sound still rumbling. This, this is your experience. You're an Israelite. You're an ex-slave. This is your experience of God. God to you is loud. He's terrifying. He manifests in thunder and lightning and smoke. He's a God that you can maybe see and hear from a distance. Maybe he works in your life in the midst of crisis, but you cannot. In fact, you must not come close to him. You stay back. And, and, and that's fine by you because you, you want no parts of coming closer to a God like this. Maybe your mediator Moses can draw near but honestly, you're not even sure how Moses can stand in God's presence. And yes, you have on some sense committed to live by God's covenant. You've committed to obey his commandments and follow him in, into the promised land. But again, you don't fully know what that means. And, and honestly, that's temporary. Because if you read past the accounts of Exodus 19, the pledge that you've made and the dedication that you have doesn't last long. Why? Because fear is only going to get you so far. You can follow a God that you're afraid of, but that is only going to last so long. All of that is the background to Hebrews chapter 12 that we're about to read this morning. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 12, as we continue our series calling us to draw near to the throne of grace, the very opposite concept that the people of Israel at that time at the foot of Mount Sinai would have understood. The call this morning... For us, is to not go to the foot of Mount Sinai, but to go to a different mountain. See, in Hebrews chapter 12, the author is writing to a group of Jewish Christians who knew that story that I just told you. They knew it intimately, personally. It had been passed down through oral tradition, through the written word of God. This was their heritage. They knew that that scene that I just described for you was the foundation of the Israelite nation, of the Israelite religious identity. And, and they also knew, these, these Jewish Christians, that while the, the Messiah had come and while they had received God's invitation to live by grace, to draw near to God, to personally know God, somehow some of these early Christians are feeling drawn to go back, to go back to Mount Sinai, to go back to the laws, to the rituals, and yes, to the fear of Judaism. And as shocking as it sounds to us as 21st century Christians, they are essentially being lured and pulled back into Mount Sinai, and you think to yourself, who on earth would want that? Why would they feel drawn back into that? And that's exactly the point that the author is going to argue this morning. Why would you want the fear and the trembling and the law looming over your head? And so in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 12, the author is going to remind those first century Christians, and he's going to call us to walk by faith. To be people who are living by the grace of God. And I'm going to boil things down for you uh, in three parts this morning. You're going to see in verses 12 to 17 that we are called to strive for holiness through Christ. Living by grace means we strive for holiness. Secondly, we're going to see that it means that we come to the city of the living God. Not to the city of trembling Mount Sinai. To the city of the living God. And thirdly, we're going to hear this morning this call that we are to live by grace. Which means living for a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So that's where we're headed this morning. That's where we're going. Um, man, this is, this is the word of God. This, this truly can transform your heart and your life today and into eternity. Pray with me as we read. God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We sit under it, we submit to it, we listen to it, and we ask now that we would be changed by it. That through your Holy Spirit, the very living and active word of God would pierce our hearts and transform us. That we could be people that live by grace. Be present among us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And make straight paths for your feet. So that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it many become defiled. 
that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have come, not to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And it's sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised yet once more I will shake not only the earth but the heavens also. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. And everybody said, amen, amen. We heard last week at the beginning of chapter 12 this call to run with endurance. The Christian life is going to take endurance. It is a long, hard run. We have to keep our eyes set on Jesus. And verse 12 says, therefore, in light of this call to keep your eyes on Jesus and run with endurance, we are now called to some practical living. I summarize it by saying, living by the grace of God. And I'm going to group this first section together into five different parts. Yes, this is a three-part sermon, and part one has five parts, so sorry. Look at verses 12 and 13. Living by grace, first of all, means that you lift up your tired hands. Lift up hands that are drooping, that are tired. Your knees that feel weak need to be strengthened. You need to make straight paths for your feet. Listen, if you're going to run with endurance, if you're going to truly obtain the grace of God, you need to lift up your hands to God as an act of faith, as an act of yearning, saying, God, I need you. Fill my hands that are tired. You need to make straight paths for your feet to run on, not wandering, not distracted, not running here and there. And if not, if not, verses 12 and 13 say, then what is tired, what is weak, what is injured, and what is lame is going to become worse. You say, how can it become worse? It could become dislocated, verse 13 said. So there's a difference between muscles and bones that are aching and tired and joints that are just dislocated. I, I learned this the hard way when my, my oldest son Simon was about three years old. Anybody ever grab their kid by one arm and one leg and you swing him, right? And I was swinging him around on the bed and tossing him onto the bed. And he was laughing and giggling. He would hop up and do it again. Probably, you know, half a dozen times I did it. And, and, and I did it one time, spun him around and threw him on the bed. And he was a little more quiet than usual and he didn't want to do it anymore. And so we stopped and he climbed down off the bed. And I noticed that as he climbed down, he kind of climbed down like this. And I noticed that he was walking around the, the house like this. And, and then I started to get, get worried. And, and I tried to touch his arm. And he, didn't, he wasn't crying. He wasn't wailing. And then I got a ball. And I threw him a ball. And he, he began to try to catch the ball with one hand. And I thought, uh-oh, something is not right. My wife was, was, was working at that time. So this is like, you know, first time dad, stay at home. Mom's out of the house. And I just did something really bad. <laughs> So I think I called her at work and got some consultation. She's like, yeah, you probably ought to. Or no, that's not true. We, she came home that night. She kind of checked on him. Something was not right. He was in pain. He didn't want to move his arm. Get up the next day, same thing. He gets out of bed, crawling with one. He's not crazy. He's still not crying. He's still not, you know, there's no visible damage. We take him to the, to the hospital to get it x-rayed. 
And, and in the process of, you know, when they do the x-ray, they take it this way, and then they take it that way. You know, they do different angles. In the process, something popped back in, and, and everything was actually okay. But what happened was his elbow was dislocated. I dislocated his elbow, okay? It's the last time I've ever done it. I, I repented and apologized, so please. He couldn't use it. It wasn't hurting. It wasn't aching. It wasn't tired. It was dysfunctional. It, it was it may, well, may as well have not been there. He couldn't use it. He couldn't move it. The, the, the joint was out of socket. It was no good. Friends, you, you, some of you, some of us feel tired. We feel hurting as it describes here. Your knees feel weak. Your feet feel like they're wandering. Right? Your hands are, are too tired to lift up. Which I feel like this passage sort of describes what it's like for me the first hour after I wake up, right? Like this is every morning. But this is describing a spiritual condition. And some of you here today feel tired, you feel weak, you feel wandering, your knees are hurting, your hands are, are, are drooping, you can't even lift them up. You can't barely even say, God, I need your help. Guys, listen, if you're here this morning and that describes you, I am so glad that you're here. This, this is the place for you to be. When you are tired and hurting and weak and wandering and weary, this is where you need to be. Because verse 13 says that God's desire is that those who are tired and hurting would become healed. And so if you're here this morning emotionally, spiritually, mentally, maybe even physically, if you're here this morning and your hands feel tired and your knees feel weak and your feet feel like they're wandering, now is the time to seek the grace of God. Ask him. Say, God, give me strength to lift up my hands to ask for your help. Give me strength to bend my knees in prayer. Give me the grace to not have wandering feet, but have feet that, that walk on a straight path, that are straight and running toward Christ. Because listen, if you do not ask for help now, things are only going to get worse. And it may feel like it can't get any worse, but I'm telling you that sore muscles and achy bones still work. But once your joints are dislocated, God forbid it may be too late. And so don't wait. Cry out today and say, God, by your grace, would you strengthen my tired, drooping hands? By your grace. Secondly, verse 14 says that living by God's grace means that we pursue peace with everyone. Listen, relationships unravel. They are prone to misunderstanding. You, you talk and live with someone long enough, your feelings will be hurt. Tension will arise, and so we need to strive for peace, pursue peace. Paul says in the book of Romans, as far as it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. goes on in verse 15 to describe this root of bitterness. That can spring up in your heart, that can cause trouble because bitterness in one person can lead to the defiling and the disdaining of many people. And you say, yeah, but we're Christians. Yep, we are. And there's still hurt and there's still misunderstanding and relationships still break and we need to pursue peace. And we need to find those roots of bitterness and dig them up and pull them out. Because bitterness, while maybe not immediately seen from the surface, it grows subtly underground in a person's heart. And it spreads the poison of hatred and slander and gossip across your life and into your family and into the Christian community. See, bitterness breaks peace. And we need to, you can't just cut it from the surface. You've got to dig out the root of bitterness deep. One commentator said that a bitter and resentful person is like a contagious poison spreading his resentment to others. Don't let it grow. Don't let it take root in your heart. You have to be relentless. You have to, you have, to have the hard conversation. I remember one time when, when one of the elders who stand with me in friendship and partnership and plurality, one of the elders had hurt me and offended me and I had let it go for weeks and I had pushed it aside and pushed it under the carpet. But I remember distinctly the time we were at his house for a meeting, we were standing on the back porch, everybody else had left and I, and I said, I'm either going to ask him about it or the bitterness is just going to grow. And I, and I had the hard conversation. And he didn't even realize that, that he had upset me. But we spoke and we shared and we forgave each other. You have to to dig up and root out bitterness and pursue peace with everyone. Friends, are you seeking peace even when it's hard in your marriage, with your siblings, with your, your small group community, with your neighbors, or are you just pushing it to the side? Because when you push it to the side, the root will grow and bitterness will take hold. Don't let it take hold. 
seek God's grace to pursue peace. Thirdly, verse 14 says that living by the grace of God means that we strive for holiness. Because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See, God is holy. That means he's set apart. He's distinct from a fallen world. And so without us being holy, none of us can be in God's presence. You remember this verse a few weeks ago from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. For by a single offering, he, Christ, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Christ came and he offered himself as a sacrifice, sacrifice for sin on the cross. And through that single offering, he has perfected us. He has made us holy. For all time, those who are being sanctified. You remember we looked at these two verbs, right? One is past tense, it's happened, it's been done, you're made holy, and now you are being sanctified, you're growing in holiness. We've been sanctified by the work of Christ on the cross, we've been made holy, and we are being made holy through that same work. Listen, you have, if your faith is in Christ as your Savior, you have been transformed, you have been declared holy by the work of Christ. And now strive for holiness. It's both and. Now we strive and push and pursue and walk in obedience and ask God to transform us and ask God to cut out those sinful desires. You have to both rely on the work of Christ and in the work of Christ, by his grace, strive to live out your faith. And not all of us understand that because, yes, there's tension here. And it's always easier to go to one extreme or the other. And some of us choose to live the Christian life like we're floating on a raft, right? See the picture of this raft up here. And, we, and you got the Huck Finn thing going on, man. you got your supplies, your refreshments, and you're just drifting down the Mississippi. Wherever the river takes you, the river takes you. And you're like, God, I'm good. Thank you for your work on the cross. And I'm just going to chill and relax and wherever you take me that's where you're going to take me and if you choose to sanctify me great if you choose to to cut out my desires great if you want to help me with your temper well god that's in your hands because i'm on a raft other people go to the opposite extreme and they say no no i'm in a rowboat right and yeah yeah i read something somewhere about god's grace giving me a ticket to heaven but man it's up to me and i gotta get there and i gotta row hard and yes god's my jesus is my savior but but if i'm gonna grow in holiness if i'm gonna be a good christian i have to work as hard as i can possibly be and when you're in a rowboat you determine how fast you go how quickly you get there the direction you go in it's all about you it's all about your work right you can choose to live one way or another or you guys some of you have heard this before or you can choose to live what I believe is the biblical expression of growth in the Christian life, and that is like life on a sailboat. If anybody's ever been on a sailboat, you know that there is plenty to keep you busy, right? And you got to man the, the tiller, and you got to adjust the jib, and you have to tack, and you have to raise the mainsail, and you have to do all sorts of other things with fancy sailing terms that, that many of you don't know. And I forget half of them that I learned at camp growing up. But, but being a sailor is busy and it's hard work and you got to be active and you have to cooperate with what? With the wind, right? A sailboat will not go anywhere no matter how hard you work without the wind. And, and a sailboat can, can go someplace with wind alone, right? Like the wind can push a sailboat even if the sails aren't up, even if there's no sailors on board. But a sailboat is meant to work when the sailors cooperate with the wind and work in conjunction with the power of the wind. And so the Christian life, the call of the Christian life is to strive for holiness. Not because you're going to get there on your own, not because you set the path or you determine what it means to grow into the image of God, but because the wind of the Holy Spirit, the power of God, the grace of God is at work pushing in your life, transforming you from the inside out through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the call now is for you to work with him, to strive with him. To put your sails in the direction of God's grace. How do you live the Christian life? Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15.10. By the grace of God, only by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain, the apostle says. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. He's talking about the other apostles. And then he corrects himself or he, he adds another layer. He says, though it was not I, but the grace of God within me. How are you what you are? How are you a son or a daughter of God only by the grace of God? That grace was not in vain, I hope and I pray. But I hope and I pray that like Paul, you're working hard, though not I. 
with the grace of God within you. Living by the grace of God means you are striving for holiness. Fourthly, living by the grace of God, look at verse 15, it means we look after each other. And I know you don't see those exact words in there, but the beginning of the ESV in verse 15, see to it, it would really be better translated, pay attention, and it's plural, pay attention to one another, care for one another, or as one translation says in verse 15, look after each other. There's a corporate responsibility to the Christian life. See, the Greek here has the sense of overseeing one another so that no one, what does it say in 15, fails to obtain the grace of God, so that no one falls short of God's grace. The, the grace of God is our beginning and our end. It is our salvation. And we live together in the church as a community, as a faith. And we're called, as we've heard in Hebrews, to stir one another up, to love and good works, to encourage one another, help one another, hold one another accountable so that no one falls short. And you say, well, wait a minute. How could anyone possibly fall short of God's grace? Like, isn't the point of God's grace is that it's infinite? Isn't the point of God's grace that it's bigger and deeper and, and, and more beautiful than any of our sins? How, how can we fall short of God's grace when the whole point of the gospel is that God's grace comes down, reaches all the way down to the bottom of the pit to you and I? Paul says it like this to the Galatian Christians. He says, if you are seeking to be made right by your own efforts... If you are seeking to reach God on your own, to pile up enough good deeds to outweigh your bad deeds, if you, by your own strength, are trying to earn your way to heaven, to be a good person through the law, through good works, Paul says in Galatians that you've fallen away from God's grace. You've failed to obtain the grace of God because you willingly have chosen a different route and you've turned from it. And so the call for you and I is to pay attention, to look after one another, to encourage one another, to point one another to our Savior Christ, that we would live only by his grace. And fifth, we see in, in verses 16 and 17 that living by God's grace means we don't give in to fleshly desires. Says there, make sure that no one becomes sexually immoral or unholy or godless like Esau. Now, real quick, real quick, let me just tell you the story of Esau, right? So, promise from God made to Abraham, Isaac, and, and his son. He has two sons, Esau and Jacob. Right? The covenant only goes to Jacob, not the other twin, Esau. Esau was actually the firstborn son. But what we find out this story in the book of Genesis 25 is that when they get older, something happened. Esau was this rough and tough outdoorsman. He was a hunter. Jacob was a quiet, soft, inside guy. He was a chef. He liked to cook. And one day, Esau comes back from a hunt, and he's exhausted. Like, you know how people say, I'm starving? He was, like, literally starving. He was famished. And so he comes in, and his brother is making stew. And so he says to his brother, Jacob, can I have some of your lunch? And Jacob, rather than do what seems like he should have done, rather than share some of the stew, Jacob tells his brother, well, sure, you can have some of my stew, but I want your birthright. I will trade you a bowl of soup for your right as the firstborn son, a place of honor and privilege, a place of financial gain. And it seems pretty selfish of Jacob, right? But Jacob's actually not the bad guy in the story. The bad guy in the story is Esau because he's dumb enough to actually take the deal. And so Esau says to him, fine, I, you can have my birthright. You can have the privileged place of firstborn son in the family. You can have the blessing and covenant of God. Just give me some lunch. Just give me what I crave. Help me fill my, my yearning, my desires, what I need right now in this moment. And then at the end of Genesis in 27, when their father is, is dying, Jacob again slyly gets his father's blessing. And again, it all is all stirred back up. And Esau is angry and upset. Esau feels wronged and he cries out to his father, begging for the blessing that he has lost. He doesn't have genuine faith still. And so as it says here in Hebrews, he had no opportunity for real repentance because he wanted the blessing of God, the benefit that came from it, but he never turned back from his sinful choice. And so ultimately, Esau was rejected by God. That's what's being described there in verses 16 and 17. And some, even some who come to God, ultimately are overcome by their sexual desires or for, that, for their rash desire for instant gratification. They are driven by their flesh like Esau was. And so they fail to obtain the grace of God because they've been overcome by their urges, 
And so the call this morning is to put faith in Christ and rely on grace and grace alone to live, to strive for holiness through the work of Christ. And that means first and foremost, you lift up your tired hands and say, strengthen me. And you fall down and say, God, build up my, my knees. Don't, don't let me become dislocated. And you pursue peace. That means when the service is done this morning, you pursue peace with anyone with whom you're broken. And you have the hard conversation that leads to peace. And you dig up the root of bitterness before it spreads. And you grow and you strive in holiness more and more into the image of God. And we pay attention to one another and look out for one another. And we don't give in to our fleshly desires. And we, we keep quick accounts with our temptations. And we don't let our belly become our God. We don't let our groin become our God. We don't let our eyes become our God. Christ and Christ alone is what drives our life. This morning, after we, we wrap up, we're only like halfway done, but after we wrap up, we're going to invite the worship team back up and, and we're going to give a call for prayer this morning because some, some of us need this. We, we need prayer to walk this out, to be a man or a woman of grace. And so I want to give you the opportunity as the Holy Spirit is even stirring you now, knowing that there's an area of your life where you need help, you need encouragement, you need prayer, come up and receive prayer this morning. But, but to be a person that's living by the grace of God means we have to go to a specific place, a specific mountain. What does verses 18 to 24 say? Where do we go when we go to God? We come to the city of the living God. Look, look back at the text at verse 18. It says that when you come to God, you've not come to something that can be touched, right? And it's described there, it's describing that scene that I recounted for you from the book of Exodus, the scene at Mount Sinai. We don't, we don't come to a mountain that can be touched with a blazing fire, with darkness and gloom and storm, with a blast like a trumpet, with the voice of God. The people back then when they heard it, they begged God, not another word. It's too much for them. Verse 20 says that even the people of Israel at the base of the mountain where God was manifesting in power and glory, they couldn't bear it. Even the, even the command to stay away, that even if an animal touched the mountain, they would have to be stoned to death. That strict command was too much for the people, and they wanted to flee. Indeed, verse 21 says the scene at the Mount Sinai was so terrifying that that. As God manifested his power and his holiness, even Moses himself trembled with fear. But verse 22 gives us this beautiful reassurance. This is not the mountain where you have come. You've not come to a mountain where there's trembling and, and the fiery, fearful Mount Sinai. Instead, you've come to the grace-filled Mount Zion. A city full of life, the city of the living God himself. Jerusalem was, was built atop several what, what is, in effect, smaller mountains, but one of them was called Mount Zion. And if you read through the Old Testament in the books of Psalms and, and a lot of the prophets, they begin to refer to the city of God, they begin to refer to Jerusalem by that mountain, Zion. And so when it says there that you've come to the city of the living God, to Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, this is the place where God dwells, where God's presence and God's peace and, and the life of the living God is in abundance. And it's a place we, we see there in verse 22 filled with innumerable angels. What are these angels doing? They're having a huge festival. These angels are gathering together in glory and song and celebration. Verse 23 says, you have come to the assembly. That's the Greek word ekklesia that we typically translate as church. You've come to the church of the firstborn of God's kingdom. Those whose names are enrolled in the roster of heaven. That's where you've come to join with those whose names are written in the book of life. You've come to the God and judge of all people, God himself. You've come to the gathering, it says, of, of the souls. That's past, present, and future. All the righteous men and women who call Christ Savior, who have been made perfect. That's where you come. Verse 24 says, let me just make it real clear, you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, the one who came to bring a new promise through the sprinkled blood of his sacrifice. It says there, it's, it's blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Look, remember the author of Hebrews is speaking to Jews. He loves his Old Testament imagery and illusions, and we should too. We should be so familiar with the Old Testament that we understand this. But here's what it's saying, right? You remember Cain and Abel. 
We learned in chapter 11, verse 4, that, that Abel offered an acceptable sacrifice to God, but Abel was later killed by his jealous brother Cain. And the testimony of, of his shed blood of Abel that was unjustly killed out of jealousy, that, that testimony of his blood still speaks to us today. But the sacrifice of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It speaks the word of the gospel, the good news to save souls, to bring us to eternal life through faith in Christ. See, living by the grace of God means we come to the city of the living God. We come to Mount Zion. We, do not, we come to Mount Zion. We do not go back to Mount Sinai. But some of us who have heard the gospel, who have been in church, who on some level understand what it means to be a Christian, some of us still seek to live in fear. And maybe you feel like you have no other choice but to live in fear, but, but on some level you're, you are choosing it. You're choosing to fear a God who no longer needs to be feared because punishment and judgment have been soaked up by Christ. And you feel, some of you, feel unable to draw near. It's like being at the foot of Mount Sinai where you, you, I can't go close. And, and, and you are still seeking to earn God's favor through laws, through regulations, through the, the, the expectations of the old covenant. And the call now is come to the mountain of grace. Come to the city of the living God. He sent a Savior to soak up the trembling, the wrath, the judgment. God is a holy God and there is no skirting around that high standard that to be in his presence, you too must be holy. But rather than run in fear, Jesus says, I have come down. I have taken on your, your lack of faith. I have taken on your disobedience, your apathy, your waywardness, your desire for the worldly pleasure. I have taken those things on and I have soaked up God's punishment on your behalf. And now Jesus says, draw near to the throne of grace. Because the throne that I sit on is a throne built of grace and a throne that pours out grace into the hearts of men and women that desperately need a fresh start. And so come today to the city of the living God and be reborn. Come today and cry out to Christ and find a God of love and grace and mercy beyond your ability to even imagine. Because see, through faith and through trust in Jesus as your Savior, you can be forgiven, you can be born again. We're going to celebrate that after the service today with, with five young men and women that have confessed Christ as their Savior. And they're going, to, they're going to fall down into the waters of baptism and they're going to rise up out of the waters of baptism symbolizing that they have died with Christ to their sinful nature. They have risen with Christ to their new nature, to a resurrected life through the power of the Holy Spirit. And they now will walk by faith. And we'll join with them and celebrate with them. And I hope that you'll be reminded of your own baptism. That you'll be reminded that you have come to the city of the living God to be reborn. And if not, then you can come up today for prayer. Today can be the day you come. And you leave Mount Sinai and you come to Mount Zion. This beautiful eternal reality. Eternity is described in the Bible in a variety of ways, in a variety of images, but, but one of them is a city, what the book of Revelation calls this New Jerusalem, as we see here in Hebrews. Now, some of us don't like the fact that heaven's going to be a city, right? Because we're country people. I mean, that's why most of us live in, in northern Baltimore County or southern York County, because we don't want the city. I, I, I call this area a small town rural suburb, but we're a suburb without a city. And to us, to many of us, cities are crowded and dirty and crime-infested, but the city that God has prepared for us is not anything like that. It's a beautiful, spacious, clean, friendly, warm place that we begin now and live for all of eternity. It's a city, we're told, constructed of gold and priceless jewels with gates that are wide open to any and all who would come. It's a city filled with God's angels and God's saints, which we learn here are having a festival, having a party. And the city is lit by the glory of God, and it's filled with the presence of God. And it's a great festival of food and drink and, and laughter and music and peace and joy. And the Word of God and the Spirit of God says, come, come in and be a part of this new life, this new new family, this new creation, the city of the living God, and live by the grace of God. And lastly, we see in verses 25 to 29 that that means we live for a kingdom that cannot be shaken. 
See, just as God spoke to Israel from the mountain, God is now speaking to you. And don't refuse him, verse 25 says. Because if the people of the old covenant didn't escape judgment when they refused to listen to his warning from the mountain, we cannot expect to escape either if we reject God's warning, not from the mountain, but his warning to us now from heaven. See, as we've seen earlier in Hebrews, true believers are those who heed God's warning and come to Christ, who escape the just end of our wrongs. But some, some even who participate in the church, some who outwardly may profess faith in Christ, tragically, they may one day fall. They may one day fall short of the grace of God and reject Christ as Savior. And so don't, don't ignore his warning this morning. Come into a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Verse 26 reminds us again of that picture of Mount Sinai. God's voice shook the earth, but now God is promising. And in verse 26, the author of Hebrews is quoting one of the Old Testament prophets, Haggai. Yet once more, and I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens also. And the author says in 27, that phrase, yet once more, it doesn't, may not seem important to you. He says, no, it's super important. It means that there's going to be one more time God's going to shake. Not just shake the earth, but shake heaven and earth. And at that final time when God shakes the earth, everything that trembles will crumble and be removed. Why does God shake the earth? Why would God do that? It says there that in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. See, when God shakes the earth at the return of Christ, only what is firm, only what cannot be shaken, only what is from God will remain. And that day is coming, brothers and sisters, that day is coming when our Lord will return, when all of heaven and all of earth will be shook, and sin will crumble, evil will topple over, the devil himself will be destroyed, crushed under the rubble, the world will be transformed, born again, and God's kingdom restored. And so in light of that, verse 28 says, be grateful. Therefore, let us be grateful that we are not receiving an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Listen, there is nothing. You, if you want to read the news, read the news. Pray, pray for what's going on in the world. Pray for what's going on in our culture. Pray for what's going on in distant lands. Pray for the earthquake in Turkey. Pray for the war in Ukraine. Pray for the, for the corrupt state of society in our nation. But remember this. Nothing will shake. Nothing will disrupt. Nothing will slow down. Nothing will stop the kingdom of God. Because God's purposes and God's plan and God's beautiful vision for his people cannot be shaken or stopped. Because our, our God, our great living God, our gracious God, what does verse 29 say? He is a consuming fire. See, those who reject Christ, who turn from him, who want nothing to do with God's saving love, they will be consumed by the holiness of God. But those who come to Christ, you and I, that, that run for refuge, that find Grace and love and salvation in Jesus, we find that, that we are not consumed. It's our sin that's consumed. We escape into God's eternal kingdom, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. But either way, God is and will be a consuming fire for all men and women. And so we run in desperation to the throne of grace. And we live by grace. And that means living for a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Listen, most of what you see and hear and touch and experience in this life can be shaken, right? The kingdoms of this earth, worldly success and riches and pleasure, it is all finite, it is all temporary, and when it is shaken, it tumbles and falls. Stock markets crash. The sturdiest buildings in the world crumble. Cars break down, houses fall, vacations get canceled, bank accounts drain, careers end, even our very bodies decay. So what are you going to live for? Are you going to live for a kingdom of this world that can all be gone in an instant? Or are you going to live for a kingdom that cannot be shaken? Are you founding your life, your wants, your desires, your plans, your decisions, your dreams on God's unshakable kingdom? Verse 28 says, therefore... Therefore, with all of these things in mind, full of God's grace, let us be grateful that we are receiving not an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly kingdom. That phrase there, it's interesting, let us be grateful, that could literally be translated, let us have grace. It's the same word translated in verse 15 as grace, and the word in Greek has a broad meaning. It can mean grace or kindness, or it can mean gratitude. And so the original meaning of verse 28, it would have sounded something like this to the original hearers. 
Since we have, have obtained the grace of God, let us have grace. Since we've obtained the grace of God, let us have grace. Let us walk in gratitude toward God. Guys, if you have received grace, then be a person of grace. If you've received grace to find life, then live by God's grace. With gracious gratitude, let's offer our very lives to God as a sacrifice of service, verse 28 says. Let's live a life of worship that's acceptable to God. Let's live out of reverence and awe toward the living God. Let's be a people who walk in faith and obedience, who walk in love and good deeds, who are people of, of abundant mercy, who are generous with God's grace to others, who reach the lost, who serve those in need, who minister to those hurting. Let's be people of grace, saved by grace and living by grace. And so we're going to close this morning again with a worship song. As the team comes up, I want to also invite up our elders, our deacons, our wives to come up this morning and gather along the sides. As I said, I want to invite you to receive prayer this morning. Some of you need to leave Mount Sinai. Today you can leave Mount Sinai and come to the city of the living God. Some of you need to stop relying on what can crumble. Stop founding your life on what is going to crumble and live for a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Today, come up to the city of the living God. Come up and say, I want to ground my life on a foundation that cannot be shaken. And the call today, as we've heard, is to strive, to pull up the sails, to strive for holiness by the grace of God. And so today, come up and receive prayer and say, my hands are tired, my knees are weak, my feet are wandering. I need to be strengthened. I don't want to get to the point where I'm dislocated. Come up and let us pray for you that you could be a man or a woman that pursues peace, that we could dig up the root of bitterness before it takes hold, that you would strive for holiness, that each of us could be people that, that grow in the image of God. And let's pay attention. Let's look out for one another as the, the scripture calls us, that we would not give in to fleshly desires, but we would be people of the Spirit. So I invite you to stand with me as the team begins to play. And as we worship together this morning, come up and receive prayer. Lift your voices to the Lord. Lift your hands to the Lord. Father in heaven, pour out your grace. We can't get there on our own. We can't reach you on our own. We can't be the type of husbands, the type of wives, the type of fathers or mothers, the students, the workers, the siblings, the friends. We can't be who we want to be, who you call us to be on our own. We need your grace. Pour out your Holy Spirit. Pour out your grace on us this morning. As we lift up this song of praise, let it be a prayer, a prayer for your spirit to come. Shake in us what needs to crumble away. Keep our feet firmly rooted in Mount Zion at the city of the living God. Come Holy Spirit and work through our, our song that we offer, the prayers that we sing. Be present. Come Lord. We're so thankful for your grace. Amen. Let's sing together. Come up for prayer as the Lord leads you.